time to stand out with Natalia Brzezinski. I'm Natalia and I'm live in New York City a few days before Christmas, reminiscing about the first time I caught a glimpse of Ariana Huffington. She was so poised and self-possessed. She carried herself with a confidence that's not always found in women, especially women with a thick accent and an immigrant background. It was certainly something I hadn't seen amongst my cadre of 20-something female professional friends. I was 23 and an intern in Senator John Kerry's press office when she swept in to meet the senator. She had just redefined herself for the umpteenth time by launching the Huffington Post and was beginning the journey to reinvent media as we know it. I remember so vividly thinking, wow, I want to be like that one day. Wouldn't it be amazing to stand out in such a strong way, to be so clear in who I am and to not worry about what other people thought? Almost eight years later, I think I've made a little progress in standing out from that intern's office. And a lot of it has been inspired by her every step of the way. We're live in New York City in the Huffington Post podcast studios for an interview I've literally been waiting for for years. Hear how Ariana Huffington finds the courage to remain constantly curious in life and adapt to its challenges. How she shuts down that little critic in her mind the lessons she's learned from her daughters and other millennials, and why sleep will be the answer to all our problems in 2016. Well, I think it's it's um, kind of a full circle for me to actually be sitting here with you because often how life is, for me, you've actually played this role in helping me kind of find my voice and connect. And um, I think it was about... 2008, I had my first job in John Kerry's press office. So I was an intern. And I remember, you know, the Huffington Post was launching and I did press clips. So I came in every day at 5 a.m. and did the clips. And I really remember vividly, like the first time my my press chief said, you know, stop going to the New York Times, go to the blogs, go to the, they're first. And then you were coming in to interview John Kerry. I mean, I think he was just coming out as a surrogate for President Obama. And I remember like, being really kind of blown away by you. And and I was 23 and it was such a formative moment. And then I think the next stage, I I had my daughter quite young, so I was 24 and um, I had to leave working because it was really hard to, you know, as many women find daycare and help. And my parents were living abroad and Mark worked full time, of course. And so I started blogging for the Huffington Post to kind of remain in the game and stay connected. And then kind of the third piece of that was when we moved to Sweden. Um, And I was part of this embassy, a very conservative role to be the wife of an ambassador. And the first way I really started to kind of get a foot in the door in terms of having any kind of outreach was by interviewing strong Swedish women for the Huffington Post. And so it was like all these stages of my life, you've always been, I mean, of course, you, but the Huffington Post and what you've created has been such a a way for me to have a platform. And I mean, I just want to thank you and and just say that, that I think you've made such a difference for so many people. And I mean, was this your intention when you started this out? Well, first of all, I'm just delighted with your journey. And with uh, how much uh, amazing work you've done. And I know our readers have really loved um, getting to know through you about uh, not just these amazing um, Swedish women, but your life there. And you've been so great at giving people a bird's eye view of your life. And, And I feel that in a sense, um, what you've done has been kind of my dream 
when I launched the Huffington Post, to be able to both be a journalistic enterprise that has great journalists, as you can see, we're here in our newsroom, um, that um, has won a Pulitzer, that breaks stories, etc., but also to be a platform for people like you who have really interesting things to say, to be able to say to say them in a place where they have wide distribution and where they have reader engagement. And so you kind of exemplify what my own hopes were uh, when we launched the Huffington Post. Thank you, Ariana. That's extremely generous of you to say. Um, you know, this this podcast is called Stand Out, and it really focuses on, I mean, both men and women. I've interviewed a lot of women, including Mika and, you know, Kathy Russell, but also men like Jeff Koons. I know he's, he's a friend of yours. And um, I think the whole thesis behind it is something that I've recognized as I kind of came of age as, as a working mother is that um, sometimes, especially women, are kind of put in a box. And what I think is incredible about you is how you have, in all kind of chapters of your life, really redefined yourself. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to say, you know, yes, I was an author, but now I'm this. Or yes, I was in politics, but now I'm in this side. I mean, it's really, and, and I see just as I try to transition from different things, people really try to keep you kind of in that place. Um, in fact, we want to do a series. How do you do it? I mean, you know, in fact, we want to do a series about the fact that more and more people uh, don't see themselves in a box. Mm. Um, I was talking to um, a young man who had been working at Bain Capital. Uh, he was a fantastic squash player, and his dream was to go around the world playing squash. And he left his secure job at Bain and went around the world and videotaped himself. We want to post all that on the Huffington Post, playing squash. <laughs> and uh, my daughter, who is 26, has a really good friend, her age, who was in the fashion industry. And then she decided that that didn't really... Um, defined her. That's not what she wanted to do. And she gave up again that glamorous job and has become a social worker. So I think, especially among millennials uh, uh, or your generation, there is this greater sort of desire to honor our own um, longings, to try different things, to experiment, and not to be completely defined by whatever job or box we find them ourselves in. I want to talk a little bit about women in tech and this whole notion. Um, I, I One of the things that I'm doing now is I'm running a um, hope, we, what we hope will be kind of a Davos version um, in the tech field in Stockholm. And I'm working with Daniel Eck of Spotify, Nicholas Zenstrom, the founder of Skype, and Carl Johan Persson of H&M. And we're really trying to create kind of this, this idea that, that business happens in between, between fashion, music, art, tech, and, and collaboration, which is really more of a European ideal and value, collaborative consensus, flat hierarchies. Um, and in that sense, I, I was actually at the White House yesterday talking to Megan Smith, um, and she was talking a lot about tech, and, and we mentioned you, and, and she was really advocating the fact that, you know, don't do separate things on women in tech or women's panels. You know, we need to desegregate tech. That's her big hashtag and, and something that the White House is working on. And I just wanted to get your perspectives. I mean, you're, you're often on many most powerful lists, both kind of most powerful women, but also just 
nothing, you know, genderless, <laughs> powerful business person. What is your perspective on like including the women aspect in these things? Should we still be having women in tech panels or should we be trying to kind of integrate it? I mean, keeping in mind that something that you've said, you know, we still are operating in kind of a workplace that is defined by male norms and male ways of communication and values. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that we need what I have called a third feminist revolution. You know, the first one is about giving us the vote. The second about giving us access to every job and the top of every profession. And that's still an incomplete revolution. But I don't believe we'll ever complete it without the third, which is really about changing the way workplaces and work are defined. Because right now, they're fueled by burnout. And that's not sustainable. We see it, it's not sustainable among men. We see more and more casualties. You know, the CEO of BMW collapsing on stage, the CEO of United collapsing on his treadmill with a massive heart attack, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and women... Um, have an opportunity to sort of redefine how workplaces are um, organized um, to create sustainable lives for themselves and for men. And of course, there are many men in this movement as well. But I think it's an incredible opportunity, especially at a time when a lot of values and characteristics that consider, are considered female, like teamwork, collaboration, are more needed than ever. Do you think um, one of my favorite articles that I always kind of bring up was a, I believe, 2012 cover of Forbes magazine, and it said very much that. It was saying entrepreneurship is the new women's movement. Do you think that's the key? I mean, women starting their own businesses in their own ways of, of working pace and values and their own goals. Is that the I think answer? entrepreneurship is fantastic, but I don't think there is ever going to be one answer. I think there are women who want to be entrepreneurs and there are women who want to work in more defined structures. And not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. And I think we need to change the structures so that they are they can do their jobs and uh, have their families if they want or have their lives outside work uh, without seeing burnout as the only way to succeed. How far away do you think we are from this change in structure from this new workplace? Is it close? I think, really, I I just finished a book in which I delved into the role of sleep mm. in our lives. And um, and I, I'm amazed by the changes happening. I think we, we have both, let's say, um, a sleep epi- crisis, um, sleep deprivation epidemic, and we have a growing awareness about its importance. And that, for me, is um, really at the heart of wellness to redefine how we see sleep because we, we've believed ever since the Industrial Revolution that sleep deprivation is manly, that it's really for people who, as, as the saying goes, will sleep when they are dead. <laughs> we see it in high schools, we see it in colleges, we see it in corporations, and now we have modern science showing that, in fact, uh, sleep is essential for not just our health, but our decision-making, our performance. We see athletes prioritizing it as part of the um, 
preparation for a game. So we are in a really um, amazing um, transitional period, um, almost between the dark ages mm -hmm. of burnout and the renaissance of integrating well-being um, and more joy, frankly, into mm. our daily lives. No, I, I mean, I'm so thankful that you've been someone that's pioneered this because I think it is ingrained in us. I mean, I'm I'm the child of immigrants from Eastern Europe. So, I mean, I don't think my mother's ever taken a vacation. You know, their life is really based on work and hard work is kind of um, what gives you credence to your identity. I mean, that yes. makes—and I, and I remember even— um, being like, I think I was about 23 when I met Mark, Mika's brother. And I remember seeing Mika and she had already started Morning Joe. And I was so kind of impressed by her because she was doing 10 things at once. She was running. She had her phone on. She never took a break. <laughs> but in a way, it was like a, a merit, a badge of honor. Yes. I work so hard, you know, and everybody's, oh, you work so hard. And you kind of aspire to that, actually, I think, especially as an American. Um, and I, I saw that difference now that I've lived abroad in a Nordic country which has very different ideals. And I wonder, you know, how, how f again, to ask, like, how can we change that? Because now living in Washington, D.C. or New York is very similar, but I think especially the, the government, the White House culture, it's the person that stays last is yes. the one that's given kind of the positive reinforcement. And it's a hard place to have a family. Yeah, absolutely. But it is changing. And I mean, with Mika, whom I love, you know, she and I did a conference, the Thrive Conference. Yes. Fantastic. And, um, and she is working to change some of these habits. <laughs> and we joke about her addiction and all our addictions, yes. really, to technology and our devices and how can we take control over our devices so that we are not controlled by them, etc. So um, I believe that a lot of the changes happening are going to accelerate because we see that it's not a trade-off, like we're mm. not sacrificing anything. We are going to be more effective. We're going to be more productive when we actually allow ourselves um, time to recharge, rejuvenate, and uh, be able to be more effective at whatever it is we're doing. How much of the the sleep aspect is also kind of associated with, you know, not only culture, national culture, but kind of government policies? And again, I... I I bring Sweden up because I had such an epiphany there. I mean, I was a young mother when I went there. My daughter was one and a half. I was 27. And and I saw women, you know, they have the least discrepancy percentage-wise of men and women working because there's 480 days of paid family leave. Women take a year off. Men take a year off. If your child is sick, you have paid sick days. You have daycare. So, I mean, I say all this because I think that's connected to kind of sleep when you have less anxiety about the puzzle and fitting it together. I think, you know, that all plays a holistic role. And I mean, I think, you know, what are your perspectives on well, what we need to do? I think having institutional changes um, like um, child care, like uh, um, medical and family leave, these are essential um, to having a life where you can thrive and not just survive. Uh, but also... Um, we need to make our own uh, decisions, which have to do with our consumption of um, everything on our <laughs> devices, you know, our hyperconnectivity, uh, our addiction to 
our social media and our texts and emails, etc. So there is an institutional piece of the puzzle and there is a personal piece of the puzzle. And we need to address both, but there are more and more role models. How do you see that happening? And I, I, I watched a really interesting TED Talk. I have it written down because I thought of you um, by Sherry Turkle. And she said, you know, we expect more from technology today. We almost treat it as kind of an intimate connection because it's something that we can get from something like a friendship without putting in the effort that it actually takes yes. to have a friendship. And that's a dangerous situation. While at the same time, we have like so much going on, for example, the health realm, elderly care with robotics kind of and, and elderly people. So, I mean, I wonder how you see these these dual tracks. How do you unplug? Well, uh, first of all, I love Sherry Turkle. She was fantastic yeah. in fantastically generous in reading the draft of The Sleep Revolution and giving mm. me feedback. And I think... What she's saying is so right on. She um, she talks about if you're at dinner with a friend, even if you have your phone off on the table, it changes the nature of the conversation <laughs> because your friend may expect you at any time to be interrupted by uh, your phone. So for me, I mean, I have certain ground rules, I mean, including not having devices by my bed when I go to sleep. Uh, not rushing to my phone the minute I wake up, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. How do you, um, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of travel and, I mean, we just, we're having kind of a podcast gathering now. We had people come in from all over, from Europe, from all over the world. And the first thing we say is like, oh, we're so jet lagged or I haven't slept for three days or any tricks on uh, sleeping while traveling? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, actually, in the Sleep Revolution book, I have a, a few appendices. One of them is different meditations um, that can um, get you to sleep and keep you asleep, especially on planes when it's harder. And... Um, I think it's important to try and avoid sleeping pills because they do become addictive. Mm. And um, there are also a lot of tips that have to do with our relationship with technology and turning it off at least 30 minutes before you sleep and that blue light which um, mm. gets in the way of us being able to slow our brain down because very often what wakes us up is not our bodies but our brains. Mm. We have a lot of activity going around here at yes. the Huffington Post, so I will not keep you, but I will ask you one more question because it's often the question that I think my listeners always want to hear, and, and you've heard it many times, but I think there is something to be said about a really kind of a personal revelation of, of how how have, were you able to really be a mother and do everything you did? You know, I, I'm, I have a six-year-old. I'm missing the holiday party today. I've been FaceTiming. I feel guilty. But I also love working. And so somehow you have to bridge that balance, even though, you know, oftentimes I get remarks from the other mothers at school like, oh, you travel so much. <laughs> Poor Aurora. You know, as if it's a really bad thing. Yes, um, yes. So, I mean, where were you when your children were were kind of below 10? Where were you on your career arc? And how did you kind of well, manage it? Were first you... of all, I completely agree with you that um, guilt is just a perennial problem for, for working mothers. And I've always been a working mother. Um it seems to me as though they take the baby out and they put the guilt in. 
So I think it's uh, really important for us to to recognize that um, when we are joyful and fulfilled, we're going to be better parents. Mm. So there isn't a recipe. Each one of us need, needs to figure it out. And um, being there for our children doesn't mean just quality quality time. It also means quantity time. It's that time when um, things happen that you haven't planned. Uh, but there isn't really a cookie-cutter solution. And the important thing is to stop judging ourselves because that kind of self-judgment is incredibly draining. Are you able to shut off that little voice in your head? The, I call it the obnoxious yeah, exactly. roommate living in my head. <laughs> Through the years, I've gotten much better. Now she only makes guest appearances. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ariana. Thank this you. Is Thank very you so kind much. of you to Love take the time. You. Thank, Thank you. you. This podcast is a collaboration with Doggins Industry and ACAST. Produced by ACAST with Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer.